0: Last week, our story in Guyana took us straight into an issue that sits at the heart of the global climate debate. The need to address poverty while also avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. The fossil fuel industry often positions these two aims as mutually exclusive. You can't solve poverty without fossil fuels. But the climate movement also does this with some folks agreeing with oil companies that the only way to address global poverty is to continue developing fossil fuels in the global south for the foreseeable future and others arguing that there can be no further fossil fuel expansion but failing to offer any real solutions to poverty as with all complicated issues the answer is equally complex it requires nuance and a whole lot of context. And it felt important to bring that in at this point in our story. So this week, I asked Dr. Narasimha Rao from Yale University to join me. Dr. Rao studies energy systems and their relationship to human well being and human development. And he leads something called the Decent Living Energy Project. That project focuses entirely on this big question How do we solve poverty? and climate change at the same time. Dr. Rao is going to walk us through it right after this quick break. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors. Which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold, so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DROPPED. This holiday season, get a gift And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%, four zero, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone. Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined but when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. That's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install. You tap a button and then you're protected. I like hardly even think about it anymore, and it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com/drilled. That's e x p r e s s vpn.com/drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more.
1: So my name is Narasimha Rao I'm an associate professor of energy systems at the Yale School of the Environment uh, I am an interdisciplinary researcher with a background in electrical engineering and social sciences as well and over the course of my career I've been interested in understanding the relationship between energy systems uh, especially in the context of climate change and the energy transitions uh, and their relationship to human well-being and human development more broadly
0: and can I have you describe the Decent Living Energy Project and, and define what this term, Decent Living Energy, means? Sure. So this
1: project addresses
0: two very important
1: global challenges. The first of them is persistent poverty eradication. And the second is climate mitigation. And we, these are both Uh, in the Global South, extremely important pressing priorities. We understand already that climate change is a threat multiplier for people. It exacerbates poverty. Poor people face the disproportionate effect of climate impacts. Uh, They are more vulnerable to extreme events, to extreme heat. So that is well understood. But what is perhaps less well understood is the impact of poverty eradication in terms of resource needs, on emissions and climate change, that is, is bringing people out of poverty all around the world going to have such a significant rise in emissions that it really complicates our ability to mitigate the climate problem? And that's the question that my research has tried to answer. Uh, It has been of interest for a long time, but it has not really been tackled in a manner that allows you to really answer the question. So let me explain why. The first question is, what is poverty in the first place? Now, our understanding of poverty in largely in development policy internationally is based on income thresholds, dollars per day that people earn around the world. And in global international policy, we use the World Bank's uh, originally dollar per day. That increased with inflation to dollar $1.90 per day. Uh, but it's seen, first of all, as an acute poverty threshold. And there are many issues with this, both in terms of its absolute value as well as the notion of an income threshold for poverty. First of all, it's hard to translate such an absolute income threshold to the actual lives of people. What does it mean in terms of the services they receive and the actual well-being? For many reasons, price differences for people in poverty, a large extent of services that are received non-monetarily through social Transfers or public services, uh, it's very difficult to characterize people's living standards with this threshold. Uh, second of all, different thresholds are used in countries. So national poverty lines use different thresholds for different reasons. So some consider absolute conditions of people, usually food expenditure and some additional aspects, but also relational poverty. So richer countries have higher income poverty lines. And so it's not just translating to an absolute level of living standards of well-being. So for this reason, the first question in this project was really fundamental. How should we define the material basis of poverty in the first place? We don't have anything that we can hang our hat on directly. And I say material in particular, because that's what we're concerned about with regards to environmental impact. Of course, well-being has psychological dimensions, social dimensions. And what we on this project wanted to do is to translate those to material requirements so that it would then allow us to estimate energy and material needs and translate that to climate impacts. So basically, decent living standards are the minimum inviolable material requirements that we consider necessary for people to pursue a good life, no matter what else they may want in their lives. So can we define that minimum threshold? And then decent living energy is then the energy requirements to provide everybody with these basic living standards.
0: I want to talk to you about something that's come up a lot. in um, we're, we're in the middle of doing a, a long story on oil drilling in Guyana. And one of the things that we hear a lot is, well, we need fossil fuels to develop, and fossil fuels are sort of the answer to solving poverty. And I, I'm just wondering what you've seen in your research along those lines, where that does or doesn't hold up.
1: Well, so what people need are services and maybe products, uh, access to basic sanitation and water and food and housing and these things. That's what they need. What is an absolutely unavoidable instrumental need that arises from those goods and services is energy because we're talking about the transformation of materials of natural resources into services that people need or goods and that absolutely requires energy so the type of energy that we use in order to create these services is a completely separate matter we may only speak about the energy demand required to eradicate poverty now in terms of what types of energy we use to deliver these services, is a matter of fuel endowments that countries have and the costs of technologies and other types of energy sources. And then that translates to a matter of global climate justice. So I think there's a lot of substance and a lot of validity to saying that poor countries right now need fossil fuels to eradicate poverty. But it's important to unpack that and understand that what they really need are energy services. But in the current global context, where clean energy is not affordable at a large scale in certain countries, and there is an immediate urgency to build infrastructure and provide these services to people, it is only expected that policymakers in the Global South will build infrastructure using what is competitive in those countries right now. And that tends to be fossil fuels, currently gas. And so that's what we're seeing. Another element to this is countries, of course, follow their own development priorities first. And countries that have resources, uh, fossil resources, they want to extract them for macroeconomic reasons, for raising revenues, for economic development broadly. Now, that is a slightly separate issue because those those revenues that they earn, it's questionable to what extent those are going to eradicate poverty, but it certainly may be an important revenue source for these countries to invest in those resources unless alternatives are made available to them.
0: What are you seeing in terms of how those decisions get made? This is like a squishy question, but I'm curious about something that has come up a lot in in the reporting that we've been doing recently is sort of, okay, well, the the world is saying we need to reduce emissions and get off of fossil fuels and all of these things but in many countries that have fossil resources they are both seen as one of the few economic drivers and also one of the few sort of reliable energy sources and there's not really anything immediately presenting itself as an alternative either in terms of financing or funding for alternative energy or even the technology and scale of alternative energy resources. How are countries thinking about this and is there a sense that the kind of short-term choices are being made with any Kind of thinking about the the long term climate impacts, or is it sort of everyone is just making the decision that's best for the next 10 years and kind of leaving it to the next batch of people to figure out the
1: rest? So, you first need to understand that the energy transition involves a very deep transformation of all our economic activities. Okay, so this is not just a matter of Uh, building solar panels instead of coal power plants. Uh, It's a lot more than that. It's a diverse range of technologies that will require a complete transformation of economies. So given that, it will require significant capital investments on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars, globally trillions of dollars, that clearly these countries do not have and are not made available today. Now, In this portfolio of technologies, some elements of them are getting increasingly competitive, cost competitive with existing technologies. So the decarbonization of the electricity sector, uh, using solar and wind technologies, up to a point has become cost competitive with coal and to some extent with gas as well in certain circumstances. However the complete transformation and decarbonization of the electricity system would involve significantly more renewables, the retirement of existing capacity in fossil fuel plants and significant amounts of storage capacity to balance the intermittency of the renewables and a lot of technologies in how you run the grid to manage this new kind of portfolio of resources. Now that deeper level of reliance on renewables, even just for electricity production is not cost competitive today. And then there are a whole bunch of technologies that you need for industry as well. If you think about fertilizer for food production, if you think about cement and steel production and industrial heat production, which requires hydrogen, these are completely not even uh, commercialized in other countries, let alone in poor countries. So the need for international cooperation for technology transfer And some sort of consideration of fair efforts is essential for deeper transformations in these poorer economies. Having said that, there is some potential for them to scale up uh, renewables beyond what they're currently doing potentially, but still there's an upfront capital requirement. So let me speak about finance for a second. Uh, If you look at private finance today, the cost of capitals are exactly inversely related to the average income of countries, that is, the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa have the highest costs of capital seen by private finance because they see high risk in investing in these economies. But this is a problem also of how risk is assessed and measured. So for example, you know we think about credit risk. People need to have debt to get new debt. And that's circular and maybe inappropriate for people who've never been part of the formal economy. But they may yet have a record a perfect record of paying bills to the extent they receive existing services. So, the existing market for finance on its own is going to be even more challenging because of the fact that the poorest countries have the highest demanding cost of capital. So, there's going to have to be some kind of government intervention to underwrite private finance, if at all, or some sort of um, broader scheme for government cooperation. And so, that's with regards to the transformation. Now, Are developing countries thinking only short-term, not thinking long-term? For the most part, we have to understand that poor countries have development priorities that are long-standing. And over the last few decades, generally countries started out uh, by saying that the climate is a northern problem. It's a problem created by the West and has to be dealt with by them. But over time, for various reasons, it's been understood that all countries have to be part of the energy transition, and also that there are several opportunities for uh, efficiently growing uh, in ways that will be beneficial to even low-income countries, for example, by reducing air pollution uh, and other health benefits of transition to cleaner energy. So there has been a push towards trying to integrate and mainstream climate conditions and climate priorities into development priorities. But it's really important to understand we have to embed climate considerations within the existing set of priorities developing countries have, rather than to think about it as, let's see how we can introduce climate policy and think about other benefits for development. So that mainstreaming of climate into development policy, I think, is happening increasingly. And so, yes, poor countries are mostly thinking about near-term priorities, but there has been significant progress in at least formally thinking about climate, explicitly including them in plans uh, for the future, but very often conditional on support from the international community.
0: One of the people that we spoke with in Guyana was saying you know, that she feels like the global north is doing with fossil fuels sort of what it did with Tobacco and cars, which is dump the stuff they don't want on the global south. And then that puts the global south that much further behind on energy transition. And I'm curious just what you think about that.
1: I do think there's a couple of concerns with regards to inequality and the uh, kind of fragmentation of the global energy system uh, in a couple of ways. One is that you have certain countries, wealthier countries, investing in renewables, but not supporting the investment of renewables in poorer countries. And then they would go ahead and invest in fossils, and so you'd have the segmentation where you have higher fossil lock-in happening in poorer countries. But there's also the risk that, and we're seeing signs of this already, that multilateral institution, development banks, start to stop funding fossil-based projects as part of their climate-first priorities. In poor countries, before you have strong decarbonization in rich countries. So, actually, the opposite effect where they are pushing for renewables, but simply by not providing lending for fossil resources. And at the same time, renewable energy is not a very affordable either. So, that actually puts the risk of investing in more expensive clean energy technologies in poor countries well before they are cost effective and affordable, and well before there have been deep cuts, even in Western economies. So I'm as concerned about that second scenario as I'm concerned about the first where you just have a, a fragmentation where poor countries continue to invest in fossils and we just don't meet our broader climate targets. Mm. So there's a serious case of justice playing out over here where poor countries don't get access to the technologies they need to develop. And not only are we not solving the climate problem, but we are making their existing development problems harder by making all forms of energy expensive because we are proscribing the use of fossils without making available cheap renewable energy technologies.
0: You've kind of already done this in a couple of ways, but I'm going to ask you more directly to just sort of walk me through what a decent living energy approach would look like in a less developed country and a more developed country.
1: So the decent living standard is intended to be a universal threshold that defines the minimum material requirements for people to pursue a decent life. So we are developing what we call universal satisfiers in a modern society, in a modern context, um, which is backed up by theories uh, of justice, of matrix justice. It's supported by uh, regulations around the world we see for different elements of decent living standards, as well as backed by empirical support. That is, we've seen household surveys around the world that show people want to have certain things once they reach a certain level of income. Things like access to the internet, mobile phones, access to televisions, refrigerators, uh, durable housing, and things like that. So what was lacking in the analytical space was the ability to project or to understand the energy requirements stemming from these particular goods and services, because we by and large think about energy demand as a function of GDP growth, and maybe decomposed into industry versus transport versus buildings, but not really being able to translate them to people's own uh, enjoyment of services and their well-being. So this project is actually creating this link between household consumption of goods and services, which provide us with well-being, or at least our basis for it, and the broader energy and environmental impact of that consumption. So what will it cost in energy terms for meeting the transportation needs of people, the basic mobility requirements, when they move away from cycles and animal power to motorized transport? What will it take to get 50 million people, households, off of slums and into more durable housing that protects them from the elements? What will it take to, to get people up to the level of nutrition that are consistent with the standards of the Food and Agricultural Organization, the FAO, or and with country- regulations around the world. So we have assessed this and found out what it would take in different countries. So what's interesting is that we learn that the most important elements of consumption anywhere in any country are that have the strongest impact on climate change in terms of their energy intensity are housing, mobility, getting around with motorized transport, and diets. These are three of the biggest elements. And one of the reasons why they're so important is because, in contrast to, say, water, sanitation, health, and education, that are all services that are provided through shared capital, shared resources, right? Networks of infrastructure that are commonly used by by large populations, cars and houses and food is private consumption. And that ends up being a lot more energy per person to satisfy well-being. So The insights for poor countries, what does a decent living energy basket look like, equitable development that is geared towards providing these fundamental services like water and sanitation, health and education, are cheapest in energy terms and provide the most important elements of well-being. In mobility and housing, if we were to provide people options for public transit rather than just supporting a car-dependent economy in emerging cities in the global south, If we were to build public housing with local materials uh, and efficient construction practices, rather than focusing on gated communities for high-income households, we would satisfy equity in terms of focusing on poor poor housing policy, and we would reduce the footprint, the carbon footprint of housing developments in general. So those are the key synergies we're seeing in, in poor countries. Now, some elements of this are the same, even in in rich countries. Uh, Some of the key differences are that for the same living standard, you do tend to require more energy in richer countries because they tend to be colder. So Northern European and Northern American countries need more energy to provide the same thermal comfort at home to heat them than the energy you need in subtropical and tropical climates to cool homes to the same level of comfort. That's one important difference. Another difference is we have some path dependence you know, in, in our economic structures. And ideally, we would have more and more people moving to public transit, which is much more efficient, much less of an impact on climate and on the environment in general. But countries like the US or Brazil also, uh, or Turkey, for example, they all are car dependent. Over 90% of travel demand is met with cars or um, road transport. So, you know, assuming that they can shift over to public transit completely is not very realistic. So in our analysis, when we kind of create realistic assumptions for the shift to public transport, you do find that the same mobility requirements cost more on energy terms in the U.S. or in Brazil compared to, say, India or Japan. So those are some of the differences. There are some colleagues of mine who are also interested in seeing these decent living standards with some adjustments in terms of the thresholds has also a sufficiency standard. That is, if we just increase the quantity of the size of housing, the amount of travel, the amount of food and water we consume for different parts of the world that allow a slightly higher quality of life, we can still use this threshold to think about even sufficiency. As you increase consumption levels beyond this minimum point, at one point, at what point will you start to see diminishing returns to well-being? Right? As we consume more and more, we know that it has significant impacts on other people. But can we see diminishing returns to our own well-being? And we we don't have sufficient evidence to say that. We only have circumstantial evidence related to income, that people's self-assessed well-being in terms of life satisfaction. It keeps increasing with income, but not uh, at the same rate as at lower levels of income. There's diminishing returns at a broad level. But we need to do a lot more research to understand how different consumption patterns contribute to well-being in affluent societies and how we can find lifestyles and patterns in the West that are environmentally benign, because a lot of these lifestyles are being aped in poor countries. And we want to we want to generate evidence for these lifestyles that are less consumptive and less impactful on the environment, but still give people high well-being. And that's the, that's the direction that I'm moving now with this research.
0: Do you find that that idea is more or less um, accepted in certain areas? Like, I, I know that in the U.S. people are loath to think about less consumption in general. <laughs> I'm curious if you find that there's any examples of global North countries where it's not such a, a big ask. Well, I think
1: you do see a lot more momentum and interest in Europe in demand side questions around consumption uh, and sufficiency than you see in the US, and this is indicated by the priorities in research, by the papers that are coming out, and I should mention that the latest. Sixth assessment report of the IPCC, for the first time, has a demand chapter in it that outlines a lot of the evidence that we've already accumulated to indicate lifestyle changes that would be beneficial for climate and for people's well-being. A classic example being moderating meat consumption, particularly red meat, and the impact on lower cardiovascular disease and significant reduction in, in environmental impacts. So there are differences, but at the same time, I, I am seeing some uh, discussion in the media. I've seen in the New York Times some articles that do talk about uh, sustainable consumption, that talk about waste. I think waste is well understood in the US, and that is a significant component of demand side discipline, if you will, in consumption. You know forty percent of food is that's produced is wasted in the US and twenty five percent globally. Also, the circular economy is much more in the public realm, understanding the short product lives and the effect that has on waste. And that indirectly, of course, uh, requires more energy and therefore has a more of an impact on climate change. Um, but I would certainly say that there is much more receptivity to these ideas in Europe. Um, there also are more examples of cities where you're seeing actual trends of people driving less. So, for example, we've seen a trend in Austria that younger people, younger generations, a lower share of them are applying for driving licenses compared to before, uh, which is interesting. You also see in Northern European cities a lot more people biking and walking as a form of commuting. So we actually see, as much as there is a lot of driving, we just see an increase in that amount of uh, commuting by foot and by bike. Uh, So there's good examples of those in the U.S. It's much harder to find such examples, because the cities are not set up for that kind of infrastructure. So there would need to be a much more transformative change here in in, in cities and in living mm-hmm. to really encourage major amounts of public transport. Uh, but having said that, I would say that the electrification of mobility has the potential to avoid the construction of massive public transit systems. We could use e-mobility, right? Electric cars and electric scooters and vehicles to create uh, new forms of shared transit provisions. And that has not been tapped into enough. And that is more realistic. Rather than building metros everywhere in the US, I do think we need to take advantage of shared mobility. Currently, unfortunately, we are actually increasing passenger demand with Uber and such forms of business. But we need to transition those to Uber pool, from Uber to Uber right and try and increase the use of shared scooters and car services that are like as they're electrifying rather than just providing subsidies for SUVs that are hybrid and have some electricity use because that's not going to that's not going to move the needle enough
0: yeah yeah, it's interesting. I just was looking at this ad database thing that shows you what companies are spending on different types of advertising and all the U.S. automakers are spending two or three times on marketing the, the SUV electric vehicles than the compact, efficient vehicles, which s- seems like a potential problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh,
1: And, you know, it's it's true that electric vehicles are generally more efficient and they will reduce emissions. But we have to think that we are needing to increase the size of our electricity systems to support that much more electricity demand. And that pressure is not trivial because in the U.S., we're already seeing a slight slowdown in renewable investments, not because of the lack of financial investment, but because of permitting requirements for connecting to the grid, and getting permits for the land. And that slowdown is equally critical in terms of bottlenecks because time is of the urgency and, and the total, even the total amount that we have to grow the electricity system is an issue. Um, the more we need to invest, the slower we're going to reach our targets.
0: I know this is like a really, really broad question, but are there particular policies that you think could sort of get at these things I guess, like, where do you think the U.S. attention would best be placed?
1: So in the U.S., I think we have great momentum with the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a good start, and there has been a lot of investments in some of the right places. But I would want to see a shift, like I said, rather than just rebates for electric vehicles at large, policies that are supporting shared mobility, shared services in particular, would be really important. Of course, more investments in, in transit infrastructure which is a political issue, um, but that would be essential. Uh, More support for research into electrification of the uh, entire transport and housing sector. So in the case of housing, we have not put enough money into electrifying homes and considering homes holistically in terms of upgrading them so that low-income communities get services that they haven't gotten yet. For example, a lot of homes don't heat and cool their homes as much as they want to because they can't afford to. Their homes are uh, of poor quality, so there's a chance here to have a equitable kind of an upgrade to the housing sector, which is very much part of the priorities of the government in terms of the Justice40 initiative in which they want to direct the benefits of federal investments to disadvantaged communities. But these need to be translated into policies. I think significant investments into housing. Retrofits is going to be critical in the U.S., and they're not doing enough in that in that uh, realm at all. An issue with regards to the size of homes as well, new homes in the U.S. are significantly larger uh, than new homes in some of the richest countries in Europe. And that's something that uh, is not something one can regulate. It's anathema to think about uh, reducing consumption, but if there's some way to creatively, progressively tax houses to raise revenues to retrofit them to make them much more efficient, that would be some kind of a way to tackle that issue. The food sector is untouched in this country. I think we need to have uh, incentives, policy incentives for healthier diets that are more environmentally friendly. And I would say these same sectors should be the focus in other countries as well. You know, Housing, transport and food. These are the most important sectors within which we need to make transformative change, we will have the biggest impact on well-being simultaneously with environmental
0: impact. Is there anything else that you want to share about about research that you're in the process of, or any recent publications or anything like that that we didn't talk about?
1: It's really important in our research to try and mainstream well-being as a actual concrete measure in our policy and in our research. Because we need to start thinking of ways we can demonstrate synergies between lifestyle changes, technology changes that are beneficial for climate and for ourselves. Because the current mode is encouraging only decarbonization technologies of the existing system. And that's not going to get us far enough. So The direction that I am focusing on, on bringing consumption directly into the center of our analysis from which we trace uh, the decarbonization of the rest of the economy, uh, allows us to look at well-being more directly. And I do have a paper on this where I outline this future research agenda and nature sustainability that I think is one way to think about moving forward. I do think there's increased research on how people assess their own lives in terms of their life satisfaction, but we need more research to link that to people's consumption patterns and lifestyles. and Mm. that's also a direction that I'd like to go uh, that I'm working on.
0: That's so interesting. And also interesting that there's not much of that research yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, people have looked at the correlation between average household income and people's life satisfaction or people's happiness. You know, if you're familiar with the happiness index and other such. Yeah. And we do see some trends, very mixed evidence, Uh, of Um, the saturation of well-being but it's not very strong people's life satisfaction continues to increase at high levels of income mm -hmm. Um, so we don't but we don't have an understanding of what aspects of their life are driving those causes of high well-being Uh, yeah it could be that it could be dimensions that are not really the ones in which we're spending all our money you know it could be areas that are extremely uh, benign environmentally in which case we're spending a lot of money doing things that don't matter so much to us and And we don't know it ourselves. We have to, if we see evidence of it, it may influence us.
0: That's so interesting. My husband is like a giant nerd for spreadsheets and data. And we spent a year, maybe five or six years ago, tracking how we spent money and time and then rating how that equated to life satisfaction and actually ended up making a bunch of really big changes because we were like, oh, we're spending all this money to do this thing that, we don't even care about that much, which is live in the Bay Area, a very expensive place.
1: <laughs> um, That's great. That's exactly the kind of thing uh, you know. I would uh, I would want people to do. Yes, it changed my whole approach to work too. I wanted like- to mention one thing again. You know, so there, a couple of things. There is also a hunch that I have that the lifestyles that we lead are coming at the expense of our feeling of community and social. Goodness. And the social yes. isolationism is leading to so many social problems um, and it is driven at least in part by our structure of living, our urban form and sprawl and many other such social factors as well. So that's another kind of area where we can think, oh my, are we really furthering our own social well-being uh, in this kind of expansive isolationist form of infrastructure, which is also costing us in terms of climate
0: All right, well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It was great to talk to you. This is the context Guyana is operating in. Hundreds of years of colonialism have not left it with a lot of great choices. This is how a country becomes dependent on oil companies to pay for climate adaptation. Changing that math means making other options readily available and truly valuing the sort of conservation efforts that Guyana was known for before it got into the oil business. That's our story next time.